Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Women on War. Where your two not-so-average museum gals discuss various topics on warfare, all the while drinking and slinging some jokes. I'm your friendly host, Jillian Drapola. And I am your second friendly host, Alyssa White. But before we dive into the land down under, we wanted to take a few moments to introduce ourselves further. Alyssa and I actually met working at the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan at Harvey Firestone's Boyhood Farm. We grew one of the Firestone family's cash crops, turkey red winter wheat, which ties in perfectly with our story today. After the farm, we both took different angles to learning history. I went on and get my military history and natural history degrees as well. And what about you, Jillian? And I took more of a living history perspective with Civil War and World War II reenacting. So together, we're super qualified to discuss all things history. What? What? I mean, we are drinking, as we've already promised in our intro. So I guess that kind of leads us before we actually truly dive in. What the heck are you drinking, Jill? So my drink actually kind of ties in with this episode just a little bit. As always, being, you know, food historian, uh, I love food history and things like that. This drink is called the French 75. It dates to World War One, its early form of this was created in 1915 at the New York Bar in Paris, uh, later called Harry's New York Bar, and it was made by the barman there, um, Harry McElhone, and the combination was said to have such a kick that it felt like being shelled with the powerful French 75mm field gun. It's very interesting. It's just basically champagne, gin, simple syrup, and lemon juice. And there you have it. But the interesting thing about this drink outside of all of that history is that it's one of the only cocktails not named after a person. It's the only cocktail out there named after a gun. That's. I feel like I need to taste this so I can understand like this whole punch type of thing. But it does sound pretty good. I mean... It has champagne in it and gin. That's where you had me actually with that gin. So there you go. And it all depends on how dry you like it. That's where it comes in. Cause you're like, whoo, that is, it can pack a punch. Oh man. I feel like if it was a very sugary type champagne or something, I would, I probably wouldn't like it as much. So I need it as dry as possible. There you Just go. Don't worry. I can, I got you. I, how about for our listeners? I'll put up the recipe and they can all comment on it and see what, they, what they've come up with. Because I think that that would be great. I think that is definitely a really great idea. I, however, am not drinking something as fancy per se. Um, if you know me personally, you know I have three great loves when it comes to drinking. The first is a really great craft beer. The second... Um, well, I should note specifically a Michigan craft beer because Michigan makes some pretty great ones. Second is I am 
I can't believe I'm using this word, but I am a slut for a good Irish whiskey. I love Jameson so much, um, as well as Patty's. It's great, but I love Jameson. It is my favorite. I'm a whiskey girl through and through. And sometimes when you have whiskey and a mixed drink, it's you can have a mule. So I really like mules. They're awesome. Um, so with that being said, we're going to combine the two last things that I love very much. And I am drinking a Jameson Caskmate, um, which is the IPA version that I'm drinking. Um, rosemary and pear mule. And it's actually really good. It was a pre-mixed kind of drink. Uh, at least the rosemary and pear was. And it's from Simple Times Mixers, which... I actually really recommend. They're pretty great. They're tasty. Um, I believe made with all like whole ingredients, which is super cool if you're into that. If not, and you want a meal, just make it the classic way. I can't blame you. But yeah, that's pretty much what I'm drinking because, I mean, you know me. Those are my three favorite things in the world. And usually I always have them at some point. Hey, I love it. And I feel like after researching this war, we need a drink <laughs> because what is going on? <laughs> I just, <ooh. laughs> I mean, if you're going to do your English uh, version of your mm, kind of thing and you're cringing and making faces, go for it, Jill, because this war is definitely, definitely like it. Yes. Yes. I accurate. Very accurate. <laughs> so, All right. Let's, well, let's get into it. We're going to begin our wonderful war series, or at least our obscure war series, starting with the Great Emu War of 1932. So after World War I, large numbers of veterans were given land by the Australian government to take up farming within Western Australia, which was in their own agricultural marginal areas. With the onset of the Depression in 1929, these farmers were encouraged to increase their wheat crops with the government promising and failing to deliver assistance in the form of subsidies. With wheat prices continuing to plummet, and by October 1932, matters were becoming intense. Therefore, the farmers prepared to harvest a season's crop while simultaneously threatening to refuse to deliver the wheat. Now, farmers not only faced difficult farming conditions, but they also had to deal with the arrival of 20,000 emus. Now, if you don't know, emus regularly migrate after their breeding season. With that being said, the cleared land and additional water supplies being made available for livestock by farmers, well, those emus found that the cultivated lands were good habitat, and they began to make their way into farm territory. So guess what happened next? The emus consumed the crops and left large gaps and fences where other animals can enjoy the remaining crops. Lots of problems here. So what happens next? The farmers stated concerns or started to state their concerns, excuse me, about the birds destroying their crops and ended up meeting with a minister of defense, Sir George Pierce. He, however, served in World War I and the soldier settlers were aware of the effectiveness of machine guns. So they requested a few be sent to take down the emus. Now we're going to come to a point about this in a little bit, but guess what? Of course, the minister agreed because guns. And, you know, although the condition that the guns were to be used by military personnel only. So the farmers were kind of at a loss. The transport was to be paid for by the Australian government, and the farmers would provide food, accommodation, and payment for the ammunition. 
Pierce also supported the deployment on the grounds that the birds would make good target practice. Once again, another fun point we'll come to later. But after these reports came out, oh man, the media followed the story heavily. There was a huge military involvement, as you guessed it. One of the commanders was Major GPW Meredith and the Royal Australian Artillery with Meredith commanding two Lewis guns and approximately 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The operation was delayed, however, by a period of rainfall that caused the emus to scatter over a wider area. So, guess what happens next? November 2nd rolls around, and so they traveled to Campion, where some 50 emus were sighted. If you don't know where Campion is, it's actually located around the big area of Perth, Australia, once again, in that western region. And, well, oh man, emus, man. They were out of range of the guns, and they attempted to herd the emus regardless into an ambush. But the birds split into small groups and ran so that they were difficult to target. So while the first round proved ineffective, a second round of gunfire was able to kill what the newspapers claimed to be a number of birds. Later in the same day, a small flock was encountered, and perhaps a dozen birds were killed. So one interesting fact about this that I'm going to add in is that it takes about five bullets, essentially, to injure an emu, but tend to kill them. So let's kind of sit there and think about this as we're going through. Because two days later, on November 4th, Meredith had established an ambush near a local dam, and more than 1,000 emus were spotted. This time, the gunners waited until the birds were in close proximity before firing. One of the Lewis guns jammed, however, after only 12 birds were killed, and the remainder scattered before any more could be shot. In the days following, Meredith came and chose to move further south where the birds were reported to be fairly tame. But Meredith achieved limited success in spite of his efforts. Army observers noted that each pack seems to have its own leader with a big black plumed bird, which stands six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. At one point, Meredith even went so far as to mount one of the guns on a truck a move that proved to be, well, very ineffective, as the truck was unable to keep up with the birds and the ride was so rough that the gunner was unable to fire any shots. By the 8th of November, six days after the first engagement, it was estimated that 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been fired. Now, on the 8th of November, members of the Australian House of Representatives discussed the whole operation and Pierce, well, he withdrew the military. After the withdrawal, Major Meredith compared the emus to Zulus and commented on the striking maneuverability of the emus, even while badly wounded. He said, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They're like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. Now, after the withdrawal of the military, the emu attacks on crops continued. Farmers once again asked for support, blaming the hot weather and drought caused the emus to invade their farms. James Mitchell, the premier of Western Australia, who's really the head of the local government, uh, lent his support to military assistance. At the same time, a report from the base commander was issued that indicated 300 emus had been killed in the first part of the operation. Acting on the request from the farmers and the base commander's report, on November 12th, the Minister of Defense approved the resuming military efforts. He defended this decision in the Senate and explained why the military was necessary to combat the serious agricultural threat. When the military agreed to lend the guns to the government, 
they expected the government to provide the necessary people. Unfortunately, that was not the case as Meredith was reinstated in the field due to a lack of inexperienced machine gunners. Uh, on November 13th, however, the military found some success over the first two days. By December 2nd, the soldiers were killing approximately um, 100 emus per week. Meredith was recalled on December 10th, and in his report, he claimed that roughly 10,000 emus, uh, excuse me, 1,000 emus had been killed with 10,000 rounds of ammunition, which, when you do the math, it's a rate of exactly 10 rounds per, per confirmed kill. Like Alyssa mentioned earlier, five to wound, 10 to kill. In addition, Meredith claimed 2,500 wounded birds had died as a result of their injuries. Now, when the media was assessing these reports, a newspaper reported that although the use of machine guns had been, quote-unquote, criticized in many quarters, the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat. Okay, so now that we got all this serious stuff out of the way, we're going to break this down how us museum people would think on these things after we presented to people that came into our historic sites and, well, we continued our conversation on this. There's, there's a lot going on here. First, I'm surprised when taking on more land, the farmers didn't look at the wildlife around them. Firstly, didn't their military training teach, to, teach them how to keep things out? Like, sir, it's called a fence. I mean, the emu is a six-foot-tall flightless bird who can run up to 40 miles per hour and take roughly, as we've already said, five bullets to wound and ten bullets to kill. Basically, the emus run about as fast as I do towards a box of chicken nuggets and fries because they can run 40 miles an hour. Just can't do it. Which, but I yeah. mean, it also equates to how fast I run towards two-hearted ale. I mean, now that I can get in Virginia, it's totally fine. I don't have to run as fast as an emu. There you go. But I mean, the chances are still likely. But yes. I mean, absolutely. Just any any girl anywhere running to anything that they really love while doing a happy dance. I mean, you can't keep up with them. It's just, they're just off and, and they go. But personally, I like how Meredith had a plan to take the Lewis guns out to the field. Like a solid plan to take on a bird whose main plan was to simply run away. And more surprising that they got the citizens to sign a document saying that the government was not at fault for anything going wrong. Just, I mean, it's almost as if the emus were joining karate's from, well, Parks and Rec, you know, his ninjas, and he yelled, scatter! But in all honesty, the leadership that the emus exhibit is pretty great from that standpoint. I mean, it's like when the bar tab comes out and everyone runs away. <laughs> but, you know, seriously... Let's take a minute to look at the Lewis guns and shout out to our buddy Dave for giving his insight on the Lewis guns. Lewis guns are gas-operated automatic machine guns designed privately for World War I. While it wasn't adopted in the U.S., the design was mass-produced and finalized in the U.K. and favored by troops of the British Empire. What's really interesting about this is it had a cooling shroud and a top-mounted pan uh, magazine. It was also used as an aircraft machine gun. So since you're a few thousand feet in the air, you don't really need the cooling shroud, and it was used, this is what I find most interesting, it was used until the Korean War. Guess what, gentlemen? She's definitely interested in guns. And yes, she is single. So you can send all inquiries to info.womenonwar at gmail.com. Remember, men, 
get those inquiries in because she is a true catch and a true gem. There's that woman on TikTok that you had posted on her Instagram feed um, yesterday, and we continue to post on today, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, she is great, first of all, because her emu is named Karen. And to quote her, Karen has all of the audacity. Think about it. All of the audacity. Holy crap. I feel like anybody named Karen has all the audacity. Now, no hate to any of our listeners named Karen, but y'all are sassy and put up with no nonsense. Straight straight up. I mean, like, she is, It's a, I think it's called Useless Farm on TikTok. And she is great, by the way. But, I mean... This emu comes up all puffed up, all six foot of it, ready to go. And she literally puts her hand up and is like, talk to the hand because the face don't want to listen to your emu ass. I'm sorry. Check. Mate. <laughs> so like the force. <laughs> exactly. She uses the force to keep the emus at bay. How perfect. <laughs> now, what if there was an army of Karens who just put up their hand and the emus are like, nope. Nope, nope, not going there. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it definitely would organize the peace between the farmers, the veterans, and, well, the emus. And essentially, the Karens would put it to bed. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Karens are scary in general. Like, if you've ever encountered them in any customer service setting. But, I mean, I got to be honest and say it. Like, women are also scary at some points in general, too. Like, I'm just going to be honest and say it. Like... They could have done some serious damage early on. They could have just researched the emus the way us girls will research a guy that we like. On the first date, you know, we're not really asking questions. We're just double checking what we already know. I feel like that's just acknowledged now that this is what we do. But I mean, really, like, think about it. So, like, I went, okay, everybody, our wonderful listeners, I want you to think. On one whiteboard behind me, we have man versus emu. Took a bit of time to figure it out. Get to know them eventually, right? What kind of leadership styles they have? What kind of war strategies are they exhibiting? Women, though, on my other whiteboard behind me, well, women versus emu. We know their birthdays, their favorite color. Where they like to eat for lunch at work on a Thursday? Like, what kind are they going to bring today to the table? Are they going to get shot down by a loose gun? Or is their audacity a little bit stronger today? We don't know. I don't know. I feel like that plan of simply running away is great. <laughs> just, that's that's the emus. The leader was Johnny Karate, and it just works. So, but I mean, when you really think about it, the Karens are kind of their own, like, special ops group within SOCOM, if you think about it. So it's like you have Rangers, Delta Force, Karen Army, and the teams, which if you don't know what the teams are, it's the Navy SEALs. Oh, my goodness. Thinking about all of these, I'm just like, Okay, so you have the uniforms for the Green Berets, you have uniforms for the Rangers, you have uniforms for the teams, and they're all like, you know, you have your aquatic uniform, you got this, and you got all this stuff, but what would the uniform for the Karen Army look like? Okay, once again, envision, like, Mike, just our wonderful listeners, we're going to envision this, ready? Close your eyes, envision this. Unless you're driving on your way to work, don't close your eyes. Is the Karen haircuts, big ass bug sunglasses? a puffer vest, and leggings with the occasional hunter boots or even fry boots. There you go. That's their uniform. So it's basically the 
girls in the fall Han Solo outfits. Like fall is approaching. You have your pumpkin spice latte. You have your puffer vest and you go to an apple orchard. So does that mean we're all carried in training then? Oh, dear Lord. I hope not. But at least we wouldn't have lost to the emus. No, because remember, we would get we would have taken time to get to know them and we would have understood deeply about these birds and what they do. And it still is actually mind boggling to me that they didn't decide to put up fences. That is like wildlife management number one in my eyes, especially someone who has a degree or getting a degree in that. It's interesting, but I, I guess we'll see. I don't so, know. I feel like. I, I feel like after they learned about like the first time, you know, building the fence, you know, just simple like, you know, fence, like snake rail fence or anything like that. It's not going to keep out like a six foot tall bird, although it is flightless. But then they got smarter and actually like learned how to put up fences, which I'm like, good, good on you guys. Good on you guys. Good job, guys. Good job, Australia Parliament and government and veterans. You're doing great. But there you have it, though, everyone. If we had established the Cape Wars in 1932, pretty sure Australia may have not lost a war to the emus or would have been seen as a propaganda movement. That's just it. It happens. There you go. So join us next week where we take a little trip around the world to the USA for the first part of Hatfields and McCoys. See you all next Wednesday for Women on War Wednesdays. I hope you all know that Jillian and I are dancing to this. <laughs> I hope you're all dancing too, because this is great. <laughs> <laughs>